George Mason speech, Virginia ratifying convention, June 4th, 1788. Mr. Chairman, whether the Constitution be good or bad, the clause that allows the federal government to lay direct taxes makes it a national government and no longer a confederation. The assumption of this power of laying direct taxes by itself entirely changes the confederation of the states into one consolidated government. This power being at the sole discretion of the Congress, unconfined, and without any kind of control, must carry everything before it. The very idea of converting what was formerly a confederation to a consolidated government is totally subversive of every principle which has hitherto governed us. This power is calculated to annihilate totally the state governments. Will the people of this great community submit to be individually taxed by two different and distinct powers? Will they suffer themselves to be doubly harassed? These two concurrent powers cannot exist long together. One will destroy the other. The general government being higher than and in every respect more powerful than the state governments, the states must give way to the central government. Is it to be supposed that one national government will suit so extensive a country, embracing so many climates, and containing inhabitants so very different in manners, habits, and customs? History shows us that there never was a government over so extensive a country that did not destroy the liberties of the people. History also shows us that monarchies and despotic governments may suit a large territory, but that popular governments can only exist in small territories. Is there a single example on the face of the earth to support the idea that popular governments can exist on a large scale? Where is there one exception to this general rule? Was there ever an instance of a general national government extending over so extensive a country, abounding in such a variety of climate where the people retain their liberty? I solemnly declare that no man is a greater friend to a firm union of the American states than I am but we don't have to annihilate the states to form a firm union. It is true that requisitions for money from the states have been often refused, sometimes from an impossibility of complying with them, often from that great variety of circumstances which retard the collection of monies, and perhaps sometimes from a willful design of procrastination by various states. But is that a reason to give this power completely over to the national government? This power is dangerous in its very nature, and members of the Federal Congress will not have sufficient information. They will not be acquainted with what would be a proper tax in one state and what would be grievous tax in another state. The gentleman, George Nicholas, who has spoken in favor of this system, must, after all the praise he has bestowed upon it, acknowledge that our Federal representatives will be unacquainted with the situation of their constituents. Sixty-five members cannot possibly know the situation and circumstances of all the inhabitants of this immense continent. When a certain sum comes to be taxed and the mode of collection decided, they will tax the items which bring in the most revenue and that are the easiest to tax without consulting the real circumstances or convenience of country, things with which they cannot be sufficiently acquainted. The mode of levying taxes is of the utmost importance, and yet here it is to be determined by those who have neither knowledge of our situation, nor a common interest with us, nor a fellow feeling for us. 
Why then should we give up this dangerous power of individual taxation? Why leave the manner of laying taxes to be decided by those who cannot be acquainted with the situation of those that will pay the tax? Instead of giving this oppressive power, we should give the Congress an effective alternative, one that will provide revenue for the central government without encountering the evil and danger that might arise from it. To this I would cheerfully agree, and it would be far more efficient. I candidly acknowledge the faults of the Articles of Confederation. But the Congress made requisitions of the states that were impossible to comply with. Requisitions for more gold and silver than were in the entire United States. If we give the general government the power of demanding their quotas from the states, with the alternative of direct taxation if the states don't comply, then this whole problem could be avoided. The possibility of this power of direct taxation being used against the states would in all likelihood never be used. The states will simply comply with the requisitions. And the states would be better able to raise the sums necessary for the operation of the federal government. The taxes would then be collected by the states, by those who know how it can be best raised, by those who have a fellow feeling for us. Let me say that a certain amount of money raised through one method might be easily borne by the people of the state, but that same amount raised in another way might be very oppressive indeed. Why then not leave this power to be exercised by those who know the mode most convenient for the inhabitants, and not by those who must necessarily apportion it in such a manner as shall be oppressive? With respect to the arrangement of representation which is so much applauded in the Constitution, I do not think it such a full and free method of representation as it is presented, but I do acknowledge that this defect results from the very nature of the government. It would be impossible to have a full and adequate representation in the general government. It would be too expensive and too unwieldy. There is no adequate way of having adequate representation in such a large country. Is this general representation to be compared with the real, actual, substantial representation of the state legislatures? It cannot bear a comparison. To make representation real and actual, the number of representatives ought to be adequate. They ought to mix with the people, think as they think, feel as they feel. Representatives should be responsive to the people and thoroughly acquainted with their interest and condition. These requirements are either non-existent or in so small a degree to be found in our federal representatives that we have no real, actual, substantial representation. But I acknowledge it results from the nature of the government. The necessity of this inconvenience may appear a sufficient reason not to argue against it. But it clearly shows that we should only give very limited power to a government so imperfectly constructed. To a government which, in the nature of things, cannot but be defective, no powers ought to be given but such as are absolutely necessary. There is one thing in it which I conceive to be extremely dangerous. Gentlemen may talk of public virtue and confidence. We shall be told that the House of Representatives will consist of the most virtuous men on the continent, and that in their hands we may trust our dearest rights. This, like all other assemblies, will be composed of some bad and some good men, and considering the natural lust of power so inherent in man, I fear the thirst for power will prevail and they will oppress the people. 
What I conceive to be so dangerous is the provision with respect to the number of representatives. It does not expressly provide that we shall have one for every 30,000, but that the number of representatives shall not exceed one for every 30,000 inhabitants. The most representatives we are guaranteed then is the number that we have now. Suppose Congress should say that we should have one for every 200,000. This would still comply with the Constitution. For one for every 200,000 does not exceed one for every 30,000. There is a want of proportion that ought to be strictly guarded against. The worthy gentleman George Nicholas tells us, We have no reason to fear, but I always fear for the rights of the people. I do not pretend to inspiration, but I think it is plain as day that the members will attend to their local interests to prevent an increase of their number. I don't know how the representatives will be chosen, but whatever be the mode of choosing, our present number is but ten. And suppose our state is divided into ten districts. Those gentlemen who shall be sent from those districts will lessen their own power and influence if they increase their number. They will dilute their power by bringing more people into the House of Representatives. They will have an incentive to prevent the increase of members in the House. And perhaps they will decrease their numbers. We should guard against so loose an interpretation of this part of the Constitution. The way the Constitution is written, the population could greatly increase, and legally the House could keep the same numbers it had at the beginning. Even worse, they could reduce the number from 65 to one from each state, without violating the Constitution. And the number which is too small even now would then be infinitely too small. But my principal objection is, that the Confederation is converted to one general consolidated government, which, from my best judgment, and which perhaps will be shown in the course of this discussion to be well-founded, is one of the worst curses that can possibly befall a nation. Does any man suppose that one general national government can exist in so extensive a country as this? I hope that a government may be framed which may suit us by drawing the line between the general and state governments and prevent that dangerous clashing of interest and power, which must, as it now stands, terminate in the destruction of either the general government or the state governments. When we come to the judiciary, we shall be more convinced that this government will terminate in the annihilation of the state governments. The question then will be whether a consolidated government can preserve the freedom and secure the rights of the people. If such amendments be introduced as shall exclude danger, I shall most gladly put my hand to it. When amendments are agreed upon that secure the great essential rights of the people, I shall most heartily make the greatest concessions and concur in any reasonable measure to obtain the desirable end of conciliation and unanimity. An indispensable amendment in this case is that Congress shall not exercise the power of raising direct taxes until the states shall have refused to comply with the requisitions of Congress. I would be willing to grant this power to the central government, but I see no reason to grant it unconditionally, as the states can raise the taxes with more ease and lay them on the inhabitants with more propriety than it is possible for the general government to do. If Congress has this power without control, the taxes will be laid by those who have no fellow feeling or acquaintance with the people. This is my objection to the article now under consideration. It is a very great and important one. 
I therefore beg gentlemen seriously to consider it. Should this power be restrained, I shall withdraw my objections to this part of the Constitution. But as the Constitution now stands, I cannot support it, primarily because of this tax provision. I wish for such amendments and such only as are necessary to secure the dearest rights of the people.